Hello, and welcome to the 29th episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact on Chicago and Illinois and their communities. For our return listeners, welcome back. Thank you so much for your continued support. And if this is your first time listening to The Broadcast, welcome. We're really glad you found us. All of this is possible because of you and our amazing sponsors and partners, including Evolver, a centralized digital hub that curates best-in-class resources and tools and events to help advance women professionally and personally, as well as our regular non-COVID podcast home, 1871, which is Chicago's premier hub for entrepreneurs, innovation, technology, and, and really the world, given all the awards that they have received for the work they're doing. I'm Becky Carroll, President and CEO of C-Strategy. I'm also your host. I am super thrilled today to welcome Chicago Sun-Times chief political reporter Rachel Hinton as our guest for today's annual year in review episode covering everything politics and government and issues that have impacted our city and state in 2020. And it has been a lot. Um, 2020 <laughs> will go down as a year that may have left this country divided, but also united in its dislike of everything 2020. So in case you are, are new to the broadcast or missed our last episode, over the next six months, we're dedicating much of our programming to conversations around systemic racism and building an anti-racist society. And we'll be engaging voices and folks across industries and sectors to talk about the history of systemic racism and solutions to the inequities facing Black Americans, all in the context of the issues that we are working through today. Now, back to our guest of honor. Rachel is the go-to sometimes reporter for all things Illinois politics, covering everything from the Pritzker administration to the heated race for state's attorney between Kim Fox and Pat O'Brien, to multiple hot topics in Springfield. There's been so many. Uh, her reporting holds our leaders accountable while also keeping citizens and voters informed, which is more important today than ever. Rachel's talent and keen understanding of the political landscape has allowed her to rise very quickly in the ranks after graduating from DePaul University and joining the Sun-Times as an intern just three years ago, which is, I think, around the time when we first met Rachel for coffee. Yeah. Um, she also brings a unique perspective to the conversation today on local, state, and national politics as part of this next generation of reporters in one of the nation's most storied news towns and as a woman of color on the front lines covering this intersection of issues that have come to dominate the political and social narrative of 2020 from racism, privilege, equity, social justice, corruption, and much economic uncertainty. So Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And yeah, it was about three years ago that we met. Yeah, it was, time. it was. Yeah. It was at that little cafe thing inside of Soho House, and I can't remember the name because I'm not a Soho regular, but it was, it was close for both of us, so it worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we've been kicking off our podcast since the, the start of the pandemic by asking our guests how they and their families have been doing during this crisis. So how have you been holding up? Personally, I've been doing pretty well. Uh, nobody in my family has, uh, or my direct family, um, has contracted or tested positive for the coronavirus, although there have been several close calls. Um, my parents are both teachers, um, and they, ha having to go back to school, you know, there have been either kids who've gotten sick or uh, 
you know, spouses or, or partners of uh, teachers that they work with um, or see on a daily basis have, have, you know, tested positive for the virus. So it feels like this is just getting closer and closer to me. So the anxiety around this time has, <laughs> has not been great. And then to also cover it has, I think, totally heightened my anxiety around, okay, well, we, it, it's definitely influenced um, so many of my decisions. But luckily, everybody, everybody is healthy. It's crazy. Don't you feel, even during the height of the pandemic, which was the spring, but I feel like it's actually now, but compared now to the spring, I feel like, like you said, like, it's like circling in closer and closer to you. And I assume you as I, I feel like I know 10 times as many people who have gotten this. Yeah. And more so during the fall. Um, I think especially after the summer, like uh, late September, early October, that's when more of my friends and and distant relatives or or people not exactly in the center of my bubble, maybe on the outer rings of that, you know, started to get sick or started to quarantine because they'd come into contact with someone who'd been sick. And I think the wintertime is going to be definitely an interesting period to see how many more people get sick who are close to me because people want to hang out. We're all tired of, you know, just seeing the same people who are in our pod or in our household. And it's starting to get harder and harder to really come up with creative ways to do that. Some of my neighbors, they have a fire pit and I regularly see them sitting out there in a socially distanced way. But, you know, once there are several feet of snow or, or inches of snow, I, I'll be curious to see how they do that, how, how I do that as well. So, yeah, I know. Cause we haven't, gone through this pandemic through a real winter it was just the end of winter into the spring when it started which was almost a blessing but now we're going to get in the thick of it and see how it really is going to impact our personal lives and and businesses that might be uniquely impacted by that so it's scary yeah my my in-laws just came down with covid them and all the kids so you know it goes to show like if we had gone to visit them for thanksgiving thinking we were safe we would all have it right now so it goes to show you that people need to stay at home just need to ride it out a few more months we have done you know we could have all been in a better situation but you know it could be worse so you know i i briefly mentioned some information about your background but can you share with our listeners um a little bit about your journey into journalism and also how you see the role of younger journalists like yourself, especially at such a unique moment in time. I love that there's so many more younger journalists that are really rising up, like, you know, Greg Pratt at the Tribune, who, you know, is the, the chief political reporter for City Hall and, and many others, Hannah Mizell, who's out there, is really good, good folks. So kind of give us a little bit more of your story. Sure. So I I graduated from DePaul in 2017. I majored in journalism. I worked on the the student newspaper. I interned at the Reader, as well as the Sun-Times in the summer after I I graduated. Before that, I've I've been a journalism kid for a long time. In high school, I was on the the student paper. I was the editor-in-chief my senior year. Um, So this has been something I've been interested in for for a while. I really like politics. I minored. Initially, I majored in political science and switched to journalism because this is what I really wanted to go into. And I think I've really used both, you know, education or both backgrounds kind of equally, especially as I've, you know, uh, 
began to specialize in politics. Um, I started covering, as an intern, I don't know if people remember, the listeners remember, there was the sweetened beverage tax that was going on at the time, oh, in 2017. <laughs> no one will ever forget I'm afraid. <laughs> so I, I was at, you know, these really packed county boardroom meetings, really getting a taste of what politics is, you know, in the, in the city um, and how these things work. Um, and, you know, they're, there was all this, this back and forth. There were so many protests, you know, in the, the plaza of uh, the Thompson Center. And so that was my first real taste of politics. And uh, as an intern and, and, you know, in my first two years, really, at the Sun-Times, I was a general assignment reporter. So I, I did politics. I covered the county government, but I also covered crime. My first year, I covered a lot of funerals for people who had been shot and killed. And that really taught me, I guess, that, that everything is political in some way, or, or, that, or rather that, that opened my eyes to the fact that like, okay, how do we address this problem through politics? Or how are the politicians trying to address this? And what questions should I be asking to see if they're, they're doing enough? And I, I would say that that still continues on now, or, or those are still questions I think about now, because, you know, even though I focus on state politics or, or politics just in general, the shootings here in the city are a big issue, especially now in 2020, because we're seeing an uptick in violence, an uptick in murders. And so thinking about that also in relation to, you know, how am I reporting on the state budget and or the county budget because they passed their budget last week. I would say that that's part of my journey or, or some of the things I think about or, or have thought about as I've grown into this role or grown into being a journalist. As a young journalist, I, I can't really describe this this point in time. I graduated shortly after, you know, President Trump was elected. So this has been the only presidency I've known as, as a professional. You know, there, during this time, we've really seen a lot of political unrest. We've seen people marching in the streets, both because of President Trump and, and also because of the shootings that are going on here. And I would say that though it's taken time for me to feel comfortable or, or to find my voice, I, I would say that I'm finding it and, and trying to make my newsroom a place where other people like me would want to work, other young people of color would want to work. So I've been involved in our union to try to make sure that we have a contract that's appealing to people. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it's one thing to have people employed at the Sun-Times, or rather people of color employed there, but are we doing what we need to do to make sure that they can have long careers, you know, that we can one day create another France Bielman, yeah. you know, if Fran ever retires or decides to leave her post, or, or another Lynn Sweet, because she's also been at the paper a long time covering, yeah. you know, our politics in D.C., I, I want to make sure that the diversity doesn't end with me. And so I think that that's really how I've tried to focus on this moment. It's hard sometimes with, with journalism because at times it's hard to separate me, my, my identity, or, or rather there is no real way to separate those two things. Right. <laughs> but it's, I think I've, I'm figuring out a better way to both be a journalist and a person of color. Yeah, I, it's no doubt challenging because the things that you cover are personal. I mean, they, how can they not be, right? And, but at the same time, you know, journalists always have to persevere during very difficult times and almost put themselves and personally in some kind of a box while they wear that journalist hat to, to deliver news in a way that everyone can digest. But I think, you know, it's more important than ever that we do have that lens of whether it's a woman, a person of color, an immigrant, whatever it might be, it, you can't get everyday people to relate and connect if you totally turn the lens off, right? I mean, you have to give people 
a little bit of a peek and at the end of the day it's like <laughs> it's still like you right so mm-hmm. do you find like is there like a like a camaraderie around the younger journalists today i know covid has made it diff- more difficult obviously to engage but you must still run into each other covering things and whatnot but is there is there is there a unique camaraderie among the younger journalists that are out there today covering politics in Chicago and Illinois? I would say so. You know, I'm fairly new to, you know, just straight politics or just doing politics as a beat. But Amanda, Amanda Vinicky over at uh, WTTW, Hannah Mizell, and others like A.D. Quigg, they're people I look up to and people who seem nice or rather, and yeah. I've been able to reach out to them and say like, I feel like an imposter and then we joke about it or, um, or, you know, just, I have questions about state government, just general questions about yeah. like, So what's a concurrence vote? Like, what does that mean? Oh, it's um, such a beast to learn. And having worked there for five years, I'm still, I still don't understand all of it. So you're, you're clearly not the only one. It's, 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 it's a lot. Yeah, there's a different camaraderie between the younger people as well as the people of color at my newsroom as well as others. Only other people of color really understand what it's like to be a person of color in a newsroom or like understand that from a firsthand experience. And I think that that really helps us connect to one another and helps us yeah. be good at our jobs. Um, well, I mean, I've been covering and working this business for 20 years and for the most part, the newsrooms whether it's been the beats, but especially on the editorial side, it's been heavily dominated by white men. And, you know, I think like to bring change throughout the organization, hopefully there will continue to be kind of ongoing change across the board. And I know recently like Marlon Garcia was moved to managing editor and I love her. She's great. So I'm happy to see that steps are being taken. And Clearly, when you're covering, I think, a city like Chicago, there needs to be a real deliberate intent to make sure that newsrooms look like the cities and towns and neighborhoods that you're covering. So I agree. So I'm, and, and I will add, I've had AD and Amanda on the show, and they're amazing. So I'm, I'm big, big fans of all this crew. So let's jump right into 2020. So, so much to talk about. COVID-19 obviously has turned into the greatest crisis we faced in a generation. Uh, The pandemic has done damage to our economy, our livelihoods, our spirits. You know, you're an essential worker among many others who are putting their own livelihoods at risk to, you know, in your case, deliver the news so we can all make sense of what's going on. So when you look back on 2020 through this lens of being a political reporter, if you were to write its epitaph, which we can't wait to get to the end of it, what do you think your lead would be and why? (laughs) I I think it would probably focus on that this didn't need to be as bad as it was, that the pandemic didn't need to be as bad as it was, that, you know, even the unrest that we saw over the summer months, I don't don't know that that needed to, to happen, or rather if we had addressed maybe some other issues ahead of time, we maybe headed off this problem, I think that maybe the year would have gone differently. So I think my lead would be, it didn't need to be this way. We could have maybe listened to scientists earlier on or enacted, I don't know, like different policies, mask mandates, or weighed those in a, a better, uh, a more streamlined sense. I, I think that that probably would have been my lead yeah. because I, I think that politics really got in the way of how we handled some of these things. Both yeah. The it's pandemic as well bad. as the unrest. 
it's almost it's almost unfortunate that the pandemic happened right in the heart of a national election that was also going to be very divisive. I mean, I think it became very politicized, didn't it? I mean, wearing a mask versus not, it was like, you wear a mask, you're a Democrat. You don't wear a mask, you're a Republican. And it's, you know, not in all cases, obviously, but it did feel like it became a political issue instead of a scientific issue. Yeah, and so part of me wonders, like, did we as, you know, the media, as the press, not do enough to really educate people about, like, the importance of wearing masks? You know, as, as I think about 2020 and as we head into, like, the last month of this year, thank God, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, okay, well, what did I do something wrong here? Or, or rather, did we do something wrong? Should we, you know, have done more Q&As with, with scientists or whatever? But I, I think we really tried to put the experts, you know, in the hot seat some of the time. We really tried to ask these questions and say, like, do I need a mask? Or should I be, you know, wiping down my groceries as soon as I get them? I don't know. There, there's so much, I guess, to think about and, and to consider, but I, I still don't think that the year had to be, I, I don't know that we needed, that we had to see so many people die. Yeah. I so. mean, honestly, I mean, I really give kudos to at least, you know, I mean, national reporters who are on this as well as local. I mean, I think all of you guys, I mean, you filled a, an information vacuum along with I always say, like, thank goodness I live in a state where a governor took this very seriously and very early and took really painful, difficult steps for some, but necessary. And I mean, I, I know a lot of folks that work in restaurants, run restaurants. It's it's tragic. It's it's it's. But when you look at what other countries did, they did an immediate lockdown. And, you know, over the course of six to eight weeks, they, they kicked it. And you can only have hindsight because we've never dealt with this before. So I understand your hindsight. I think the hindsight, though, that really mattered was the leadership at the top, ultimately, to have done something that mirrored, at least to some extent, best practices of other countries that got a jump start on us because it hit them sooner and what they did and, and how they kicked it. Now, of course, it's all coming back. And we all knew that it would. The science said that it would come back in the fall into the winter. And that's happening. And fortunately, we're on the heels, right, of, a, <laughs> of having this vaccine. It can't come soon enough. But I, I, think, I think you guys did all that you could. And we had, you know, both the governor and a mayor who took it very seriously. But in addition to COVID, 2020 also represented one of the most historic moments in time, I think, for this country and acknowledging its very racist history and system of white supremacy in which it was founded upon. I mean, it's very hard for some people to have these conversations, and I have them a lot, but when you start to peel back and you think about everything from how our economy was built, how the White House was built, why certain laws um, were constructed the way they were, uh, you know, it was built around the idea that that the white race and white men in particular were superior to others. And it's not saying white people today um, are all lockstep on that. They're clearly not. I'm not. (laughs) But, you know, you have to acknowledge that past in order to recognize where we are today. And the murder of multiple Black Americans at the hands of law enforcement this year gave rise again to the Black Lives Matter movement and I like to hope that it elevated the consciousness of many Americans in recognizing the systemic racism that has really bled over into every level and inch of our society. So 
you know, what are your observations on how the Black Lives Matter movement has impacted our, our local politics, at least here in Illinois? I think given the summer that we saw, um, I think there was a greater focus on the relationship between police and communities, especially communities of color. I think maybe one of the most concrete or, or tangible ways that the Black Lives Matter movement maybe impacted local politics here is that the county defund, not, not defund, I use defund in quotes, but they redistributed some of the resources, some of the money that the Cook County Sheriff's Office gets to the Justice Advisory Council, which, you know, considers the reforms that President Tony Preckwinkle wants in regards to criminal justice reform. They've redistributed money to that as well as to other community-based things or groups or services, I guess, began kind of addressing that relationship that we saw come up many times during the summer, or rather they began to address that debate of like, how do we begin to put our thoughts of, okay, we need to defund the police, or, or rather we need to reconsider this relationship. How can we do that in a tangible way? And I would say that that's one very specific example to me. And I would also say that the unrest that we saw during the summer, the shootings that we saw during the summer, the murders, that really made people think about race and how the country itself hasn't grappled with its, its history of racism, as well as, okay, well, what can I be doing? Or, or rather, you know, the companies that I support, the causes that I support, what can I do now to kind of show that I, I do think Black Lives Matter or I agree with this, this sentiment? Whether or not we see that continue, you know, now that things have kind of quieted down again, I think that'll be interesting. But I, I, I do believe that this kind of jumped into our consciousness as a collective in a way that ha- it hadn't before. And I think it had a, a much longer sort of effect or it, it stayed on our minds a lot longer than it, it previously has. In other ways, I mean, people, you know, have, have wanted the Columbus statue taken down. I can't remember right now if it has been. Yes, it has been. So like, and you know, there are other, <laughs> yeah, there are other little things or other little ways that I believe that, you know, the movement, this movement has really affected politics and, and the way our, our city looks or the way the county looks, but the long-term effect of that and other policies that come out of it, I think, remains to be seen. Yeah, it's interesting. I've wondered if the fact that so many people were home during this time and, you know, not on vacation, not going on with friends, not distracted by the other common life things as we usually, you know, are. I just, I've always wondered, like, you know, did it, did it just have an opportunity to captivate more people and to kind of force more people to really educate themselves and, and think about these things in a different way. And I'd like to think that there are some silver linings to this horrible year and this pandemic that, you know, more people are, are, are engaged and aware of this and hopefully it will um, impact how they, how they view themselves and they view life. And that segues into another question about the debate right now about how, you know, the civil unrest from the past several months and many of the messages behind it may have impacted both our national and local electoral outcomes. Um, you know, it's like a very divided electorate, almost almost very little purple, you know, as opposed to just red or blue. And it, you know, really brought out the base of both Republican and Democratic parties. And I'm not sure as a Democrat, I know obviously you're a journalist, so you don't have a partisan hat on, but for me, even though Biden won, 
I mean, it's startling to think that 73 million people came out to vote for Trump. So when, when you were reporting on the campaign trail, how did you see the civil unrest locally and nationally impact elections here and across the country as well? I mean, how did you, what was your take on it? I think the race I covered the most was the Cook County State's Attorney race. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as soon as we saw the multiple rounds of looting, the superintendent, Superintendent Brown, and, and Mayor Lightfoot, you know, uh, I wouldn't say they, they blamed Kim Fox, but they, uh, yeah. <laughs> they didn't they not blame Kim blamed. Fox. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think that that, as well as, you know, uh, President Donald Trump, he mentioned Chicago and, you know, the county over and over again when he would talk about the civil unrest and he'd talk about these cities that were run by Democrats who weren't being tough on crime. I think we really saw like a hearkening back to, I think, the 80s and this like law and order kind of stance. You're either for law and order or you're weak on crime. And I think that that was really, uh, it wasn't surprising to me because, you know, President Donald Trump has really focused on law and order and has talked a lot about cities that he believes are, are run by Democrats who aren't doing enough to kind of limit crime. But the state's attorney's race was really where I saw that. Mm -hmm. The Republican candidate, Pat O'Brien, would say that Kim Fox wasn't doing enough to stem the violence or to make sure that violent offenders were staying in jail. That part was in quotes. You can't see the quotes, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's, I would say that that race was really one of the main ones where we saw this. And, and I mean, Fox won. So I think, depending on how you look at that, that could probably mean that the county is very democratic. So people probably yeah. see the reforms that she's put in place as being helpful rather than hurtful, or, or rather they don't necessarily believe that maybe her reforms lead to more violence or, or lead to quote-unquote violent offenders being let back, let back out onto the streets or whatever. But I think that that race was really put into this national context, as we saw the, the shooting in Kenosha of Jacob Blake, as we saw looting here and whatnot. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting how the Fox O'Brien race really did, did end up being kind of a microcosm of that law and order message that kind of really had been drawn from the whole civil unrest and whatnot that happened here locally as well as nationally. And it's fascinating when you, like me, I, I, I belong to a lot of Facebook groups downtown because of work that I do. And to see the level of vitriol against Kim Fox from these more wealthy neighborhoods that, yes, I mean, no one condones looting, right? But I mean, when you, when you look at it, there was about three days of looting. There wasn't like three weeks of looting, right? It, it, it wasn't like Kenosha. It wasn't like Minneapolis. It wasn't like Seattle, Portland. It was very, you know, it was, it's, in my opinion anyway, which I know some people won't share, but in my opinion anyway, it was, it was much more contained than it was in other cities that saw unrest that went on into infinity. But to, to read comments of people, um, they, they felt like the city was coming apart and wondering, you know, just reading comments about the crime in their neighborhoods, the unrest and, you know, where are the police and demanding all these things. And I, I just found myself occasionally going on some of these posts and like, where have you been the last 20 years? What's going on in, in Englewood or Austin or Auburn Gresham or other communities that 
live with violence literally every single day. It's just, it, it just shows you that how segregated the city remains to be and, and also how segregated our lens continues to be. And, you know, it was, I don't know, I always have hope that people are going to start to, to recognize that their city is not their neighborhood, right? Their city is their entire city and, and you have to care about everybody. But, but yeah, in that race, there were a lot of people who were commenting about the O'Brien Fox race. But at the end of the day, I mean, the state's attorney got, wasn't it like 54, 55% or so of the vote? Yeah, I, I believe it was at least over 52%. Maybe ended up being around 54. But yeah, she, she won. Yeah, pretty handily. I do believe, going back to your point about, you know, people saying like, people feeling like the, the city is, you know, coming apart. I think this was the first time for some people that they were really maybe made to see that the way that they live is is different than the way that people on the south and west sides live. And with the looting that happened downtown, people were like, I, I can't believe, you know, that this is happening or where are the police? What's going on? But I, I think that, you know, that really goes to show or, or, or maybe underscore the fact that this year has been really crazy in a lot of ways for a lot of people and that the norms that we've all become used to of like getting up going on the train going to work you know you you work from nine to five and that's it those are your hours and you get to go home that doesn't exist anymore or you know for the next few months until we get a vaccine until we can figure out what's going on that doesn't exist anymore as well as the stuff with beyond the pandemic like with the civil unrest i think that that's really made people realize that there, there is more going on besides quote unquote normal days that they get to have. Underneath all of that, like just because you can take the train from work to a block from home doesn't mean that everybody can. Absolutely right. And I think that really brought a lot of that into focus for people. Or I, I mean, I think that people began to think about it. I don't know that it brought it into focus for a lot of people. I'm sure some people, you know, are choosing to leave or are choosing to continue to believe that people just want to loot, which in some cases, you know, is, is true, but they're not thinking about the underlying systemic issues of, of why that's going on. So, and I hope that, that this, this time means that people are, are thinking about that. I know. I'd like to think if they're like the silver lining of 2020 is that it was a teachable moment on multiple fronts. I'd like to hope so. I gotta, I gotta hold out hope that people will, who have not been exposed to certain experiences and the experiences of others have come to to learn, you know, a lot more than they did. So I, I have to have some hope that that is going to be some kind of a takeaway. And there are some people just will never care. I, you know, that just is what it is, unfortunately. But yeah. I hope that was a teachable moment as part of, of this crazy year. And speaking of this crazy year, it's it just seems like there was an unprecedented level of attacks levied on journalists and the profession itself, mostly by Trump and the right. And especially in the, obviously, the, the field of political journalism. So I know you've, you've been on the beat three years. I, I mean, on the political beat, you know, not as long. But I mean, you, you were covering county government, which county government, city hall, it's, it's what's political, what's government. It's, it's all intertwined, really. But how does 2020 feel different from other years for journalists, do you think? For you and others that you know and I don't know, how, how has it like impacted your resolve for the work you do every day? I think, you know, going back to the civil unrest, I think the 
like reckoning with that also had to do with the media and how we report on things and how many people of color work at or whatever newsroom you're talking about, or how many people of color work in newsrooms in general, and what are those newsrooms or those journalism institutions doing to to do no harm or to do the least amount of harm? So I think that came up. I think there was a constant er- undercurrent of just stuff going on. The pandemic has touched so many lives in so many ways in so many sectors of, of our country and the world. So reporting not just on people who have lost their jobs, but also on the people who have died and the long-term kind of ramifications of this and how this will change how we work, how we commute, how we relax or how we come together as community or with friends. I think that's been something that's, that's constantly there. The federal investigations that are going on into ComEd, into various elected officials. It seems like things, little things pop up every once in a while in different ways. And that's another thing you need to keep in mind. It just feels like the list of things to constantly circle back on or to circle back on or to remember to do work on has grown. And not even so much that it's grown. It's, it's mostly like the same three things, but those things are so nebulous and take so many different shapes and can impact people in so many different ways that, you know, I'm regularly scratching my brain about like, oh, did I, oh, I, I sh- should have done a story on that or, oh, I didn't realize this connection or, you know, have we done anything about this thing as it relates to COVID? It's been a lot of, I kind of feel like my brain is on a hamster wheel and I'm constantly (laughs) going and going and thinking about all of these different ideas. And I also don't have all the time in the world. And so trying to balance that as well as, you know, trying to have a personal life during a pandemic while I work from home and my hours don't really exist anymore. I don't work 10 to six or nine to five. It's like, I start working when I wake up. I start responding to Slack messages. When I go to bed, I'm responding to Slack messages or emails or texts or whatever. So I would say like 10 platforms these days that we all reply to. It's crazy. So it's just, (laughs) it's draining. Yeah. And I I still want to be good at my job. So I think it's even more draining in that way because not only am I doing the work, but I'm thinking about how I can do the work better. Right. Well, it's an adjustment coming into a position like yours for anybody, but during a pandemic. I mean, journalism in part is built off of the, the synergy that you kind of, you, you create in the newsroom. And when you're not in the newsroom, I mean, that's, that's you know, that really changes the dynamic to a good extent for how you do the job. So I'm excited when we're all back to offices. <laughs> you know, I like, I never thought I'd miss it, but I do kind of miss it. I miss seeing my team three days a week. You know, we go into our women co-working space and it's just nice. I miss buying people lunch, right? Kyler from my team is on, on this call and we buy lunch and catch up and hang out. And it, it does change you. And um, I think there's some things that are a benefit to being at home, but I think as human beings, we need variety. So I, I can't wait for some variety to come back. So let's switch over to Springfield, which is your main beast of a beat. The patch is hardly new to political scandal, unfortunately. 2020 has proven to be not much different. Given the, the recent news involving the various individuals who are close to the speaker, I, you know, based on your observations, conversation reporting, like, how do you see things possibly playing out given the growing discord of, among House Dems? I think, I think Rich Miller reported today we're up to about 18 House Dems who are, who have come out publicly to say they wouldn't support the speaker. 
speaker. And if he does survive a challenge in the House, how might it impact his ability to lead, especially with such a mounting fiscal crisis and other crises on our hands? So if the 18 people who've said that they won't vote for, vote for the speaker hold to their word, he doesn't have the 60 votes. And so then we'll probably see House Democrats kind of vying for power amongst themselves and trying to build a coalition that can get them the 60 votes needed to become the speaker or to have a successful candidate for speaker. That vote happens in January, so they have time to do that. But whether or not they're going to be able to get someone who will have enough votes, I think, remains to be seen. There are names that have been floated, but no one except for Stephanie Kifowit has launched you know, a, a real challenge to the speaker. So I think, right. and he's, he's still popular, or rather, considering that only 18 people have spoken out saying they won't vote for him, that then, to me, signifies that there are the other set of people either don't want to say anything or are for him. And so that's, that's still a, a good majority of people. And so I think what we might see is maybe like a multiple ballot sort of thing. So, okay, you know, you, you've got your first choice. Uh, let's say your first choice doesn't get it. And then you go to a, a second ballot. Can they get enough other people to vote for them to become speaker? Could we potentially see the speaker hold on to power by consolidating or, or making concessions to some of the 18 people who voted against him or not voted against him, but have, have said that they won't vote for him? I imagine that there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes right now for the speaker, or rather he's pulling a lot of strings to try to hold on to power in some way. He released a statement either last week or the week before saying like, I look forward to being a candidate for speaker. So that to me signifies he's not going to just, oh, I don't have the votes. I guess I'll sit this one out. No, he's going to try to get the votes. So I I imagine that he's not done. (laughs) He's not going to make this easy for anybody else. He's not probably going to, you know, come out and say, okay, I'll, I'll run for one more term and that'll be it. I think he'll keep going until he can't go anymore. And I think, you know, even if he does survive this challenge, let's say he does, he, he is able to pull the rabbit out of the hat and get enough votes. I think that there will continue to see Democrats kind of challenge him, especially the 18 or however many in January decide to not vote for him. I think we'll, we'll see people try to get him to make concessions for things that they want, given that this shows that he is, he is weakened. And so if they can get him to agree that this is the last, his last term as speaker, or maybe there are different bills or, or other things coming up that they want passed or they want his support for, maybe that will come up too. But I think that if he does survive this, we'll see a weakened speaker who may have to collaborate, have to, have to concede a little bit more to keep the caucus happy. Yeah, it's fascinating because there are clearly people in the House who, you know, if they had to step up and, and, and take the lead, you know, they, they could do it, but there's, there's not like, um, there's not like a dead ringer. There's not like the obvious, obvious choice for who that could be, which does give him to some extent an, an advantage because, I mean, you have to have somebody who's ready to step in who can also get the votes. And I don't know, I remember reading or hearing somewhere that, yeah, he may not have the 18 votes, but someone else has to get the 60 votes too. Yeah. And if that doesn't happen, uh, does he remain speaker? And, you know, I'm not versed enough in the law uh, and the regulations that govern that to understand how it works, but it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, how that plays out. But at the same time, like, 
I could see there being more uh, unrest, for lack of a better word, if he has another term, because people are going to start to try to position themselves, right? So you're going to hear people are going to get louder, people are going to get more disagreeable, people are you know, going to try to position themselves for leadership because there really isn't that obvious choice. So it'll be fascinating to see how that plays itself out. And, you know, the Republicans who will, you know, could possibly have some more of a role in that, depending on how the votes turn out, they made small gains in the last election cycle. Uh, I think some Republicans are making too much of their gains, but maybe that's just the partisan me. But, uh, you know, here in Illinois, you know, that may have had to do with the Trump effect. You know, he brought people out. And while the fair tax didn't pass, you know, I, I think that has much more to do with being on the ballot at the worst possible time to be on the ballot for changing the state's income tax structure. So, but as you talk to Republican legislators and party leaders, do you think they see a path to make inroads here in such a heavily democratic state um, as Illinois is with either statewide races or in the legislature or, or, is, or are their gains going to be about as good as it's going to get for them? <laughs> um. I think that in, in the conversations I've, I've had, you know, post the election, House Republican leader Jim Durkin made a point of everybody, or all the pundits rather, said they were going to lose seats and they were going to lose a lot of them. They were going to be the big loser coming out of the 2020 election, but they weren't. They picked up, I believe, a net gain of two seats. And so I think that that's kind of given them a bit of hope, or rather that's maybe put some wind in their sails for, okay, maybe we can get more people to vote for us. Or, or maybe, you know, there's enough discord among Democrats that they can sway some people who are maybe moderates or who are maybe more fiscally conservative to vote for whatever Republican candidate they have in the race. And I think that would be good for them. Both chambers of the General Assembly have a super majority of Democrats. And I believe the House is like a super duper majority. <laughs> so... I think whatever gains they can get, even if it is just a net gain of two seats, I think that's still better for them than having lost four seats or whatever. I think the inroads, I, th I think that that's still something that is being considered and talked about of like, how can we continue to build on the successes we saw in 2020, quote unquote, I'm speaking as Republicans, how that turns out and, and what that looks like as we head into an, or prepare for a midterm uh, and other elections, I think will be interesting or I'll, I'll be interested to see how that goes. Yeah, it, it will. I feel like, I mean, if I was a Republican in a position of leadership, I would be trying to figure out how I, I leverage this election in a way to inspire donors who want to open up their pocketbooks to fund efforts to keep making gains, whether that's going to be in a statewide election or that's going to be in the House or Senate. It's a big mountain to climb in, in making any real inroads. So, I, you know, I, I'm it remains to be seen if the folks who usually fund these efforts on the Republican side will actually step up to do so. So another effort underway in the legislature that is a very much an outcome of the you know, shootings and murders of Black Americans at the hand of law enforcement is the work of the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus to help create an anti-racist agenda that They've been working on for the last several months, at least 
focusing on areas that the legislature can actually impact. And they're going to propose a series of laws and enforcements of existing laws and regulations that maybe have not really been held accountable that can help create anti-racist policies. That was supposed to be presented in the veto session of November and December, which of course was canceled, which you would be covering right now. If it was going on, we wouldn't be doing this podcast. But what kind of reception do you expect them to get from their colleagues when they convene this lame duck you know, legislative session in, in January when they, you know, present their agenda? I think they'll be well received. In press releases that came out after session was canceled, several people made note of, hey, we know that the Legislative Black Caucus has been working on this, and we look forward to talking about that in the lame duck session, which to me signaled like, hey, we haven't forgotten that there are things that you, that this caucus has been working on, and we want to get to it. We just can't get to it now because of COVID. And so I, I hope that that remains true. I believe that the caucus is working on stuff about, or, or pertaining to like criminal justice reform, education, and yep. economic access and, and healthcare, which are all important topics, especially in light of the pandemic and, and how that's shown us all of these divides really in those four areas or those four subject matters, whether or not that does happen in the lame duck session and, and what else, <laughs> along with whatever else needs to get done, I think, you know, obviously remains to be seen, but I think that there is a political will to do that or, or political interest to begin taking those things on. So, Yeah, I certainly hope so. I, I hope that, that the, the kind of interest in, in leveraging this moment in time will still prevail into the new year. I don't think I've, I've ever felt in all my years working with state government and politics in general that I've seen such a, a, a robust effort being put in place to, to actually do something that is very tangible with potential to be very impactful that also is captivating so many so many of us, but so many members, hopefully the House and Senate. So I am certainly hopeful. So looking back on the year, who do you think the political winners and losers are of 2020 and why? It could be national, it could be local. And, and what issues and electives do you think we should be looking out for in 2021? I guess I'll start with the losers. Uh, you know, President Donald Trump obviously lost the election, but I, I believe that he's someone to watch in 2021 and beyond because he's really turned people out. He's really got people to come out and vote and he's gotten them to be excited about voting and about the presidency. He has this, I believe it's new, quote unquote, his political action committee. There's talk that he is trying to like create his own like news network to kind of compete with Fox. So I, I believe that we should watch him and pay attention to what he's going to do because I, I don't think that just because he's out of the White House that he's, he's done and he'll just go off into the sunset and we'll never hear from him again. Um, I think that he will continue to have a big influence on politics slash Republican politics moving forward. I would say that another loser, unfortunately, I mean, the big title is the fair tax, but I think the coalition that really tried to get that passed lost in the conversations I've had since the election, people have said that the messaging for that maybe wasn't as good as it could have been, especially when you're asking people to vote for a constitutional amendment that can completely change the way our tax system works. And so that, and the fact that now we don't have that and, and you know, the state passed a budget based off the, the hope that that would pass, I would say that if some of those people 
according to Republicans and others that I've talked to, they have egg on their face and now they have to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? Pritzker has kind of put it on Republicans of like, okay, you, you tanked this thing. So what are your ideas? But really you're the governor. And so, you know, the, the buck stops with him, how, the cuts to the budget that he's talked about, have, he said that over and over again, they're going to be painful. But with a pandemic going on, I don't think that people really have the appetite for painful cuts. Um, and I think that if those painful cuts happen, they will remember that and come 2022, which is when he's up for re-election, I believe. I think that they're going to bring whatever feelings they have to the ballot box. I, I believe that that's going to be an interesting thing to watch too going forward. Yep. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's it's a huge hole that needs to be filled that's been made only bigger by the pandemic. But I do think it's it's smart politically, at least, to put some of this pressure back on to the Republicans because, you know, it's it's easy to be against something, especially something I think it's easy to message against at a, at a moment in time like this. But it's another thing to, like, have a solution. And Republicans... They need a solution as well, but cutting jobs and into the bone of education and healthcare and whatnot, which happened already a lot under Ronner, is is going to be very difficult to do. So it's a very sticky situation for anyone to to find themselves in. And so I'm just curious here before we kind of call it a day for this really great episode, but who do you like to follow on Twitter and why? And when you're not reading the Sun-Times, of course, what other sites or publications do you like to get your news from? A.D. Quigg and Hannah Mizell are, are both people who are oh. super plugged in, so I'm, I'm always following them on Twitter. Alex Nitkin, who covers the county for the Daily Line, is another one that I follow. Also seems very plugged in. In terms of what I'm reading, I... I kind of religiously read Capital Facts. I have like Twitter notifications for him now. So that way oh, I can yeah. see like, oh no, did I get beaten to something? Or, oh, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll find always away. seems to somehow have things first. Yeah, I, I wish I was as plugged in or as respected. Hopefully one day, hopefully one day soon. <laughs> you'll get there, you'll get there. Yeah, uh, yeah, those are the main ones. NPR, WBZ, I think is always doing really interesting things. The team over there, Dave McKinney, Tony Arnold, and Dan Mihalopoulos. Yeah. They're all doing it. over there too. But yeah, she does all City Hall. Yep. But for state stuff, I would say that those three are, are really who I follow. So, Well, you and I are uh, very aligned on that. Um, I, I follow all of those folks very religiously, which is very helpful to me because I feel like they're my own kind of personal political and government assistance. <laughs> just follow them. And yeah, you, you know what's going on. So exactly. I want to, Rachel, thank you for joining us today and giving us some great background yourself, inside of the electorate, politics, this crazy year, 2020. I really enjoyed this. I can't wait to share it with everybody else. And thanks for making time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. So as always, the broadcast is brought to you by C Strategies, a strategic communications and public affairs firm bringing passion and veteran experience to help clients meet their business goals. Thank you again to our sponsor Evolver and our podcast home, 1871. The broadcast is produced and edited by Tweed Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nicholas Fedora. Script writing and additional production provided by Kyler Sumter. Music by Christy Bennett's Gloomy Gypsy Project. And to learn more about Sea Strategies and the broadcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Sea Strategies Shy.
So come, let the walls play.